and welcome to The Climate Conversation. I'm Dan Bursett, president of the Environmental and Energy Study Institute. It's always exciting when we get the chance to dive into climate research that is happening across the country and talk to the scientists themselves who are leading that work. And that is what we have in store for everyone today, and I'm super excited about it. And I'm also super excited to be joined by my colleague, Emma Johnson, my co-host. Hi, Emma. Hey, Dan. I'm excited to be with you today for this episode and excited to get Sciency on the podcast. ESI, we focus on providing congressional staff with science-based information about the climate crisis. So it's always important that we are up to date with what researchers are doing out in the field so that we can be more informed when educating others about these issues. And we're going to be focusing on climate research that is happening within federal agencies today, specifically the work going on at the U.S. Geological Survey's Climate Adaptation Science Centers, which were established by Congress in 2008. These centers, which are often known as CASCs, are part of a partnership-driven program that connects scientists with natural and cultural resource managers and local communities to help fish, wildlife, water, land, and people adapt to a changing climate. There are nine of these CASCs across the country divided across different geographic regions, and each regional office is a federal university partnership made up of a consortium of institutions, including the university, as well as tribal and non-governmental organization partners. The range of issues that these centers work on is equally diverse. Researchers are studying climate resilience strategies for tribal nations, fire dynamics in forests, and salt mart responses to sea level rise, just to name a few current projects. And we're really looking forward to learning more about the work going on at two of the Climate Adaptation Science Centers with our guests today. Joining us are Dr. Jessica Hellman and Emma Custer. Jessica is the Consortium Director of the Midwest CASC, which is a partnership of five research universities, a tribal college, a tribal natural resource agency, and an NGO working across eight states. She is also the Executive Director of the University of Minnesota's Institute on the Environment, which supports breakthrough research across disciplines to address complex environmental challenges. Emma is the University Assistant Director of the South Central CASC, whose consortium consists of five universities and two tribal nations serving four states. Jessica and Emma, welcome to the show. Hi, Emma. It's great to be here. Great to be here and alongside a fellow Emma. Well, thank you so much for being here and really looking forward to learning more about what the CASCs are doing. Just within the Midwest and South Central regions, there are so many challenges that you all could be studying, from heat waves to biodiversity loss to water stress. Could you share some insight into the threats from climate change that each of these regions is facing and how you approach some of the challenges through your research? And maybe, Jessica, we could start with you in the Midwest and then hear from Emma from the South Central Cask. Great. Well, let me start by saying one of the extraordinary things about the Climate Adaptation Science Centers, or the CASC as we call them, is that we are a national network. So we share across regions a bunch of common interests and common climatic concerns and ways that the climate is changing across our country. Also some commonalities of our important economic sectors and the way that natural resources affect our economies. But we also have regional specific concerns. One of the ways we address those concerns is we actually articulate them as research priorities in each of our regions. So a couple of the key research priorities in the Midwest include heavy precipitation and drought. So we are have the good fortune of abundant water resources in the upper Midwest and across the Midwest. But the pattern of that precipitation and the way that those hydrologic systems flow is going to change quite a lot. So that's a climate consequence for us. Loss of winter is very important economically and in the natural resource sector. Shortening of seasons, changing in the amount and distribution of snowfall, 
other hydrologic regimes. We all share an interest in a concern about what we call novel ecosystems, so new combinations of species appearing together. And then I always like to say this is not unique to the Midwest, but we have our unique flavor. And that is a lot of our challenges of how we'll address climate change are not about climate change themselves, but about us as people, agriculture, land management, the ways in which we pursue natural resource conservation, our existing laws, other activities on our landscape, urban areas. And we have all of those in the Midwest too. Yeah. And similarly in the South Central, we face a lot of the same climate impacts, but we also face some unique ones. Our region spans from the deserts of New Mexico to the coastal marshes of Louisiana. So as you can imagine, the impacts of climate change are as diverse as our landscape. The people, plants, and animals in our region are facing more intense droughts, longer wildfire seasons, changes in rainfall patterns, declines in winter snowpack, and earlier spring blooms, and that's just to name a few. Drought, wildfire, and flooding events alone have resulted in over 10 major disasters in the last two decades across our region, each one totaling over $1 billion in economic damages. And we recognize that climate change is happening now, and even if we stopped all the human emissions of greenhouse gases today, we would still continue to experience climate change throughout our lifetimes and beyond. Thanks, you both, for laying out those challenges. And a powerful way that the CAS are working to address these issues that you all mentioned is through partnerships. Jessica, you mentioned that this is a nationwide program, that there's these CAS all over the country, and there is a special relationship with tribal nations in particular, and each CAS has these partnerships with tribal nations. In 2014, the CAS began collaborating with the Bureau of Indian Affairs to place a tribal resilience liaison at each of the centers. Jessica, could you tell us about the importance of this collaboration and some examples of the projects or the work that the liaisons lead? Absolutely. This is really important in the Midwest. It's important nationally. Of course, it's really important in the natural resource management sector. And it's important that we collaborate with tribes because they are sovereign nations with a suite of rights and privileges associated with natural resource management and stewardship and plants and animals that are critical to all of us. So in the Midwest, there are a bunch of ways in which we collaborate with tribal nations. The way the CASCs are organized is they are a partnership between the federal government, represented by USGS, and its interaction with the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and also what we call the consortium side, or which is a collection of universities, in our case, also a tribal college, in a tribal natural resource agency that's a collection of many different tribes. So that enables us on the consortium side, that tribal participation means that those tribal entities participate in shared governance. So we are working together to decide what we work on and how we pursue our work collaboratively across our region. They help determine our science priorities. They shape our training of graduate students in workforce development, pursue issues that are important to tribal nations, but also help all Americans, all Midwesterners understand what traditional ecological knowledge can contribute to natural resource management and to adaptation and to help us all understand how to work together to better steward our resources in a climate change environment. Since the CASCs are hosted at universities in each region, that means there's a strong focus on education and supporting students. What are the fellowship and training opportunities available through the centers, and how have you seen them help grow and support the next generation of scientists and climate adaptation practitioners? If you think about the scale of climate change, 
as Emma Custer earlier suggested, climate change is currently being manifest as a series of steady changes and also natural disasters. It's modifying everything that we pursue from the private sector to our specialization in the natural resource sector. That means if you think about the scale of those shifts and those changes, it means that literally everyone will be confronted with a need to incorporate climate change in their decision-making. And that can be pretty daunting to think about what is, as the CASC, we think about how do we meet the science needs? What are the things that we have to figure out in order to assist in that adaptation practice? Figuring things out is something that universities are particularly good at, for example. But we also have to produce the people who are going to populate those organizations that are pursuing adaptation. We have to populate those researchers inside the university, the practitioners, for example, in our tribal natural resource management agency called the Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission, or GLIFWIC. They have a team of scientists and natural resource managers that are confronting climate now in ways that they hadn't before. And we need to produce a workforce in those kinds of organizations that is prepared to address climate change. So how do we pursue that? We do that by including very explicitly students in our research work. So we have graduate and undergraduate researchers participating in research. We also directly support student research in the form of fellowships. The consortium members do that, support that work as well as the federal government. We do a series of trainings and workshops and professional development for all the students who are participating in our network from things like collaborating and co-producing research with tribes to understanding what it means to produce action-oriented science, not just inquiry-based science, but science that is applicable in the real world. And then we need to help those students transition into various settings from the you know, state and federal government, for example, municipal government, tribal governments, corporations, and also academia. In the Midwest, we are also particularly focused on undergraduate training. We have a tribal undergraduate research program, which is focused on building capacity among tribal climate change science professionals. So this is one huge part of what the CASCs are pursuing, not only doing science, but producing people who can continue to pursue that science for decades and decades into the future. Thanks, Jessica. You brought up some really great things. And I just want to highlight from the South Central CASC a few things that we're working on as well. So for us, we host a biannual workshop for about 20 graduate students and early career researchers that are interested in learning how to increase their communication, leadership, and ethical research skills. And we also support graduate students in our region with their research and encourage them to attend various gatherings we have throughout the year. So our fall science meeting or our communities of practice, both of which provide the students with an opportunity to network with and learn from others across the region. Our graduate students and early career researchers that have engaged in these efforts have recognized the value of cross-disciplinary work and its importance to solving the challenges brought on by climate change. But it doesn't end there for us. Our training and education efforts in our region and others are not just for students, but also for current decision makers who are having to make those decisions now. So the materials that we developed are being used in short courses and other educational programs for natural and cultural resource stewards and managers. For example, I just wrapped up a training series for grasslands practitioners across the Great Plains. One of the participants stated after that final workshop that they felt empowered with knowledge as a result of participating in the training series. 
Yeah, that's a really great point about confronting adaptation right now is what our current workforce needs to do and our future. And so we're also needing to help retool and give new capacities and resources to our current natural resource managers because they're confronting these issues right now. Thank you, Jessica and Emma. It's really exciting to hear about the work that you all are doing to get students involved. And I know it must be exciting for them to be part of work that then gets elevated in such an important national way, and then also to just encourage them to keep pursuing this work in climate adaptation. So really exciting to hear about that. And speaking of the work that you all are doing, the CAS, obviously, there's so many projects going on at once. You know, if you go to the CAS websites, there's just lists and lists of projects that are ongoing as well as past ones and constantly being updated and have so many people involved, which is really exciting to see. So I'd like to dive into just two of those projects with you both to give the listeners a sample of the work that both of you do. Emma, can you talk about management strategies for the native Rio Grande cutthroat trout in the South Central region? And Jessica, how about the studies around increasing the resilience of sport fish in the upper Midwest lakes? Certainly. I want to start by saying this is not work that I have done, but it's work that we have funded in our center and we've worked very closely with these researchers. The Rio Grande cutthroat trout is New Mexico's state fish and currently a candidate for listing for conservation concern. So it's important to know how to manage for the species today and into the future. In 2018, our center funded a project led by researchers at New Mexico State University and the USGS Cooperative Research Unit to explore how this species was being impacted by habitat loss and increases in non-native trout. The project concluded a few years ago and the research team discovered that the largest impact to the Rio Grande cutthroat trout was the current competition for food with the brown trout, which is not native to the river system. Tribal nations, pueblos, state and federal agencies are all concerned about the impacts that this brown trout have on the native cutthroat populations. And the research team observed that the Rio Grande cutthroat trout production rates were actually four times higher in places without the brown trout compared to places where brown trout was present. And as climate continues to change, we expect increases in stream temperature and riverbeds going dry. So it's very likely that we'll see more competition between these two species in the future. And the results of this project are providing guidance for waters where the Rio Grande cutthroat trout is a conservation priority and helping to focus restoration efforts on streams with the greatest potential to support Rio Grande cutthroat trout in the future. And their final report and project data are available on the CASC Project Explorer webpage for those that want to explore more about this project and other projects we have. We also in the Midwest have a variety of fish-related projects. Fish and sport fish in particular are very important in our regional economy. And thinking about how changes in hydrologic systems and aquatic systems, how those will be manifest as a result of climate change is one of our science priorities. So a really neat project that is funded out of the Midwest CASC, and like Emma said, this isn't my research, one of the extraordinary privileges of being part of a research network like this and helping to guide that work is that I get to hear about and participate and work with investigators and researchers and natural resource managers and graduate students on a wide range of research that's not even my own. I just get to advise and counsel and help fund and celebrate and promote. But one to highlight is this, as you suggested, Emma, resilience of sport fish in the lakes of the upper Midwest. So this is a project looking at multiple fish species. Midwesterners would recognize some of them like walleye and large and smallmouth bass and northern pike and yellow perch. Those are some of our most economically important sport fish. 
So climate change and specifically lake temperature has a really important impact on fish recruitment, survival, and abundance. And these are all factors that fisheries managers are trying to manipulate or understand. And so we want to be able to quantify how these species are going to respond, not in just one specific place, but across the entire region. So we want to know both what is the regional change and you need to know it sort of lake by lake. This project is led by Gretchen Hansen of the University of Minnesota, but she has partners in Michigan and Minnesota, Wisconsin, a lot of departments of natural resources at the state level. And she's built a new data set of daily surface temperatures for more than 185,000 lakes across the region. As people know, we are the land of lakes. And these are built using a variety of modeling techniques and lots and lots and lots of localized measurements. And so this tool, this daily surface temperature map, can be directly used by managers to do things like figure out where priorities for stocking or restoration should be pursued. Thank you both. And it's really exciting as someone with an environmental science background who did a lot of field work once upon a time. It's really exciting to hear about what the scientists you all work with are up to and how that can inform what managers and other people in the field are doing. So it's great to hear about what's going on. And connected with that, the research is obviously valuable, but it becomes more valuable when people can use it and it can inform management strategies and other ways that people are looking and interacting with the environment. So I'm curious to hear about some of this impact that you all have seen in your work. Could you both share some stories about how people outside of the CASC network or people outside of the direct researchers have applied your data to different projects or found it valuable in some way? So this is a great question. Management plans and techniques that are currently being used may have different consequences than intended if climate change is not considered in the decision-making process. So the CASC, as you mentioned, are developing new tools and data that can help support research stewards in their projects. One way that we're trying to do that at the South Central CASC is to help people through the development of high-resolution climate projections. So our climate modeling team has been producing what are known as downscaled climate projections to help decision makers make climate-informed decisions at the local level. And by knowing what the future may hold, we can better plan for and adapt for future impacts of climate change. We provide guidance for how to interpret and use climate projections for decision making. And our projections have been used in several reports and decisions over the past several years. And we're currently updating those projections with the latest global climate models. So stay tuned for that. But another example that comes to mind is a partnership between researchers at the University of Oklahoma and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that were interested in exploring the impacts of extreme drought on endangered mussels in Texas. So this research team is using climate model projections to understand what the streams will look like in the future and how those different stream characteristics might change. And so there are certain stream characteristics that these mussels need to survive. And the research team is using these projections to understand how changes in things like temperature and flow could impact the health and survival of these mussel populations. These projections are suggesting that the water is getting too hot and there's not enough water in these streams to maintain mussel populations. And unfortunately, these mussels can't just pack up and move to wetter areas. So they're really having to rely on what's this future going to be like and, and what can we do. And information from this project is being used by U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to assess their current vulnerability and then also inform current and future planning decisions related to the mussels. Previous to September 2021, the Midwest region was combined with the Northeast. So relatively recently, the Midwest was carved out as the newest standalone region. 
So the projects that we're currently funding as an independent region are all currently ongoing. So their impacts and the ways in which they're being used are just now being realized. I referenced this lake prediction tool. Now we have coming out of the cask, we have this amazing set of predictions for 180,000 lakes. That's already being used by natural resource managers for things like restoration and fish stocking, but also just people who want to know how their local environment might change. There's another project that is very important in our region that folks might know about wild rice or manolmen which is a sacred species that's tremendously culturally important to tribal communities across the Great Lakes region. It's also very important to non-tribal people as well. And it can be quite sensitive to changes in climate. And there's a really important project funded looking at how hydrologic changes are likely to affect Monoman and what we can do about that. And that is a direct partnership between the Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission that I mentioned earlier, and also the Lac de Flambeau Band of Lake Superior Chippewa, working with university scientists. And not only do the products of that research get used by a wide range, but it's actually the production of research that engages those tribal partners. For example, some of the science production they were doing together where they're building a model to characterize how changes in water flow and availability could affect wild rice. There was a workshop conducted where traditional ecological knowledge led by and generated by tribal members was used to produce information that would go into those predictive models. So incorporating traditional ecological knowledge in the research process for the benefit of tribes and for the benefit of all the other members of the upper Midwest region. Jessica mentioned, you know, the Midwest cask is the youngest, but the whole cask network is maybe 12, 14 years old. It's not that old. And adaptation takes a while. Some of those projects that we started back in 2010, 2011, 2012, we're just now starting to see some of those long-term impacts. I want to express how excited we are to get to see where this is going to go in the future, because we know that adaptation takes a while and it's hard to know exactly how projects are going to be implemented and the impacts they have in the short term. But we are very excited as a network to see where it goes in the future. And the way that we have the greatest chance of achieving those long-term outcomes is by working together from the very beginning. We have this kind of old model universities often do where we'll go off and I'll do our research and then we'll hand over the results to you and that will have impact. But that's not the way we're doing things in the CASTS. We're producing science directly with the people who need it. And those agencies and partners are also telling us what research is most important to pursue also. So it's a new way of doing science and it will take some time for it to see how it bears out. But we know the relationships are flourishing along the way. So stepping away from fish and mussels, now I want to ask a couple questions relevant to Congress, another sort of systems of organisms that we all have to try really hard to understand. ESI, obviously, we're focused on federal policy. And Congress especially has been very busy lately passing historic climate laws. I'm curious if those recent climate laws, the Inflation Reduction Act, the Infrastructure Investment Jobs Act, have those had any impacts on your work? as you've sort of identified priorities or been able to deploy more resources? What kind of impacts have those new laws had on your work? Yeah, that's a terrific question. There's a lot going on. I mean, we're a wide collection of organizations and entities, public institutions, private organizations as well, nonprofit organizations, and we're collaborating with the federal government. So that means that the budget for the CASC itself through the USGS and the Department of Interior has a direct influence on the funding that we receive. 
our consortium organizations are also contributing financially to our collaboration, but a lot of our resources do come from the federal government. So the state of the CASC budget affects us very much. Last year, that budget grew. So the Biden administration and our climate change adaptation champions or people who are concerned about our ability to adjust to climate change in Congress have seen it to be a priority to increase the availability of funds. And if you think about what I was saying earlier about the magnitude of what it means to adjust and adapt to a changing climate, it does require a lot of resources and not just in the Department of Interior related to natural resources, but in, you know, in agriculture and in basically every federal system that you can think of. So we are grateful for and feel a great deal of responsibility to carry forward that increased budget allocation. Importantly, there's also has been a bill before Congress to authorize the Climate Adaptation Science Center. So the CASCs are appropriated, but not yet officially authorized by Congress. So they are not currently a permanent program, though they are an important program. And so there has been a bill that made its way through committee last year. I'm not entirely certain what its status will be, is or will be this year to authorize the CAST so that they become a permanent program. And that's really, really important to solidify the relationships that we're building and to know that the work that we're pursuing will have a legacy in within the Department of Interior over a long period of time. You also mentioned the Inflation Reduction Act. It's amazing to think about the scale of the magnitude of investments that are going into climate change. That affects us in a couple of ways. In the IRA, there's an interest in providing adaptation services to various agencies, and the CASCs will be part of that, and we're working that out with some of our federal partners right now. I like to also talk about the Inflation Reduction Act is going to create a lot of investment, including a lot of new projects and a lot of construction all across our country. Most of those we think will be favorable, but everything that we do has potential side effects and consequences say, infrastructure investments that might be pursued or financed by the federal government, those will definitely have an effect on natural resources. So part of our job is to help steward and think about what are some of the unintended consequences, as well as the co-benefits of various kinds of investments. So we want to place those IRA and infrastructure investments in really smart and thoughtful ways that provide benefits in the natural resources sector and make sure that they don't have unintended harmful consequences as well. Also, individuals can pay attention and should be paying attention. We talk a lot about climate change. Of course, we talk about, as a society, we're confronting the need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and transition our economy to a renewable energy one. But we also need people to think about adaptation and to pay attention and to talk to their members of Congress about what it means to live with the consequences of climate change. Oftentimes, we talk about climate change as a politically contentious issue. But we are really grateful in the, across the CASCs, partially because of our geographic span, that we enjoy quite a bit of bipartisan support. And there are members of both parties who understand that stewarding and protecting our natural resources will require good science that understands climate and the changing climate and is able to help us navigate through those changes. And for that, we're extremely grateful. Well, this has been extremely interesting, and I'm having flashbacks to three years ago, we did a coastal resilience briefing about the Great Lakes and had a representative actually from the Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission, and he talked about the work that they're doing with the Ojibwe tribes. And it's fascinating work. It's super interesting, and it all kind of comes back full circle the longer you work on this. And Emma, 
the Rio Grande is something that we've covered in podcasts, and I have a hunch that we'll cover it in briefings because the adaptation challenges there are tremendously important and I think also unknown especially for this policymaking ecosystem we work in. So this has been fabulous. I'm so thankful for the two of you for all of your great work. Thank you so much for joining us today and uh, helping our audience understand the great work that the Climate Adaptation Science Centers are doing around the country. Thank you, Daniel. It's been a pleasure. And Emma, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And I always enjoy being with my other CAST colleagues from other regions. So other Emma, it was a pleasure chatting with you too. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for having us today. Well, Emma, as usual, a really interesting conversation talking to two people who are working so hard to help communities across the country and the environments that those communities are part of adapt to climate change. We talked a little bit about Glyphwick, which is the Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission. That's an organization we worked with several years ago when we were working on our Coastal Resilience Briefing Series. It's great to have that organization come back up again because they are doing such interesting work. One other thing that came to mind, especially I think when we were talking about students and sort of the next generation of adaptation workers, is we have a fact sheet on climate jobs. And for the first time, we started adding adaptation jobs to what we define as climate jobs. And our new fact sheet will be coming out in a few months. And I'm hopeful that we'll have an extra two years of experience collecting that data, because I think it's an underrepresented and underappreciated part of the climate workforce. There are a lot of people around the country, whether they're in CASCs or CASC-adjacent organizations or organizations that are working on their own outside of the CASC network that are doing really, really important work to help communities improve their resilience and be better able to adapt to climate change. So looking forward to that when it comes out a little bit later this year. And I'm glad that Jessica and Emma were with us today to help us understand what that looks like on the ground and these research institutions that are actually responsible for, for getting so many of these people trained up and the people who are already working in it. I thought that was a really great point, that we're not just talking about the next generation, we're talking about the current generation adapting to climate change as well. Yeah, definitely, Dan. And for those of you listeners who are really interested in getting more into this climate adaptation jobs conversation, the next podcast episode is going to be all about that with some really great guests who are adaptation professionals. So be sure to definitely tune in and listen to that in two weeks' time when that comes out. Another thing that I was thinking about during this episode is actually a past episode that we've done on the podcast way back in season two, which focused on another set of climate centers from a different federal agency. So the U.S. Department of Agriculture also runs a set of climate hubs that are based in different regions across the country, also doing work with communities and adaptation practitioners and people in the field to help do research and give information, educate others on climate impact so that people can be more prepared out in the field. And I think it's great to highlight another set of federal agency science centers that are doing great work. So Super cool to revisit some federal agency climate science work and to hear about the awesome projects that are going on across the country. And I'm really glad that we got to hear from Jessica and Emma today about these topics. So if you want to learn more about EESI's work on climate adaptation, head to our website at eesi.org. Also follow us on social media at EESI online for all of our recent updates. The Climate Conversation is published as a supplement to our bi-weekly newsletter, Climate Change Solutions. Go to eesi.org forward slash sign up to subscribe. Thanks for joining us and see you next time.